You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. One of my least favorite classes that I've ever taken in my entire life, which is saying a lot because I have taken a lot of classes, is a course that I took in college on apologetics. So no, this wasn't a class that uh, was teaching me to apologize, although ultimately I was very sorry that I took this class. But it was uh, about apology in terms of a systematic defense of the faith. I read about and considered all of these different ways to offer apology for the Christian faith. Different ways to defend it against those who would claim it didn't make any sense, or it was wrong, or insignificant, or worse, harmful. Ultimately, the class had the opposite effect on me than I think was intended, by the end of it, I never wanted to offer that kind of apology for the Christian faith ever again, um, unless it was actually an apology for some of the harsher part of uh, parts of our faith's history. So, ooh, sorry to my professors. And the reason this was my least favorite class was actually mostly just because of one single project that we had to do. We were required to find a large group of people who were not Christian and try to use our new apologetics skills on them. You can see why that was a problem. (laughs) As someone surrounded by Christians at a Christian university in a small Texas town, I went to the only place I knew I could reliably find a large group of non-Christians, and that was the internet. Naive as I was, I believed I would be able to do this impossible assignment and there would be a mass conversion of people to Christianity and it would be uh, reported about throughout the church. So I created a Reddit account. (laughs) Uh, Those of you who already know about Reddit are cringing before I even have to explain, right? But for those of you who are unfamiliar, Reddit is a social and news and discussion website. Uh, They call it a community, although um, it's a little too mean to be a community, in my opinion. (laughs) For my purposes, Reddit was this message board where I knew I could encounter atheists and try out my apologetics skills on them. So I decided to employ what is called the moral argument for the existence of God, Um, So I posted in an atheist chat board about how the only way that human beings can know what is right and wrong is if some external being introduces those concepts to us. Essentially, the idea is that morality, which is one of the least scientific concepts uh, that we can engage with, um, is objective, that it's ultimately, um, the subject of morality is ultimately God and not us, right? Needless to say, I was swiftly chewed up and spit back out. Within minutes, minutes, there were hundreds of posts in response to mine, completely ripping apart my argument and in no uncertain terms reminding me what a dim and deluded sheep I was for being a Christian in the first place, and that is putting it nicely. (laughs) 
And so with my tail between my legs, I crawled back to my classmates and I made what I referred to as the saddest PowerPoint in the world uh, that was riddled with screenshots of some of the more colorful comments that I received, none of which are appropriate for this setting, only to find that the other people in my class had a very similar experience, uh, although none of them were quite so foolish as I was to try this assignment on Reddit. What many of the arguments revolved around for all of us was the idea that to believe in God when we live in this era of uh, such unprecedented scientific discovery and technological advancement is certifiable. How could someone believe in God and read the Bible and truly accept science or even just modern reality? The folks on that chat board would have described the relationship between science and faith not just as tense, but as contradictory, maybe even as incompatible. They viewed me as a soldier, a well-equipped one, I mean, a a not-so-well-equipped one at that, but a soldier who was, in one way or another, declaring war on science. That's how they viewed me and my classmates. To be fair, the church has often, and with great force, declared war on science. (laughs) I'm thinking about Galileo, who was the foremost scientist of his age and many ages, right? And he was uh, condemned of heresy and sentenced to spend the rest of his life on house arrest. The most brilliant man in the world had to stay in his own house for years until his death because he engaged in discussion about Copernicus's theory that the earth was not, in fact, the center of the universe. How many of your parents told you that growing up? You're not the center of the universe. That's all Copernicus was trying to say. (laughs) Some good parenting advice. But in fact, that the earth revolved around the sun, which was not the center of the universe, but just the center of our galaxy. So from the moment of his condemnation in 1633... It took more than 350 years for the church to admit that Galileo was right and to clear his name of heresy. Here's the headline. Look at that date, October 31st, 1992. Oh, no. It does not look good. (laughs) So aside from conversations about the positioning of our planet in the galaxy, which, by the way, we are more certain of now than ever before because of science. At the center of the tension that exists between science and faith is a much bigger question. Uh, The question of the beginning of creation. How did all of this come to be? So if you've ever been in church before, chances are you know the way that our story goes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and light and darkness, sky and water and land, plants and animals, and of course, human beings, right? But if that's true, then much of modern scientific fact and theory can't be right also. What about the Big Bang? What about dinosaurs? I don't think there are dinosaurs in Genesis. Um, Maybe I misread it. What about evolution? You can't be a Christian who believes in the Bible and who also believes in these scientific theories and facts. Or so the argument goes, right? 
All of these are great, great questions that I think are, are very important for us to engage. But I would also argue that they bring us to an even larger question, a question that might be even more important for those of us who call ourselves Christians in this modern day. And that question is this. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Because if it is a science textbook or a history textbook, then those folks who yelled at me on the internet all those years ago were right. Faith and science do not go together. If it is a textbook, then the young earth creationists are also right, and the earth is only 6,000 years old, give or take a few years. Um, And evolution isn't to be believed, and Charles Darwin is public enemy number one, and um, dinosaurs were not real. I guess someone should tell that to the folks um, at the Smithsonian Museum. I don't know. But if the Bible is not a textbook, it, if in fact it, it might be something different, something more than just that, then maybe, just maybe, we can be people of science and faith. People who believe in science and in God at the same time. Maybe Jesus would have a lot to say about our faith and about science. Although to be clear... This is not something that he ever addresses in the Gospels. And why is that, you might ask? Well, it's because Jesus was a first-century Jew living in Palestine. The field of science, as we know it, was hundreds upon hundreds of years away from developing into what we know it as today. Jesus lived in a time and a place where the worldview, the cosmology, the understanding of our world was entirely different. This is where our scripture passage for today comes into play. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you are familiar with the Bible, chances are you hear those resonances with the Christian and the Jewish creation story, right? Which reads like this in many translations. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what follows are the seven days of creation, right? And so if the Bible is our textbook then we would say, great, we've got it. We understand the beginning. And we would take that at face value. But because it is not a textbook, because the Bible is an ancient faith text written in a completely different language, several actually, by people that we do not and will not ever know, we must assume that there is more to the story that we can read then we can read in our nice, neat English translations of the Bible. We must assume that there is this whole world of culture and knowledge and understanding about the world that we will never entirely understand. But as Christians, we can and we must try. So as a little thought experiment here this morning, don't worry, it's nothing scary. Um, Imagine with me for a moment if you were somehow transported back to ancient Israel and you went up to someone on the street, and you said to them these important words. If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? They would not finish the phrase. And if somehow they could translate whatever you said into Aramaic, which is the language they would be speaking in ancient Israel, If that were possible, they still wouldn't understand because they would have never seen 
the classic film Ghostbusters. In fact, they would have never seen any film. I imagine that films in general would probably blow their minds, right? So this same principle of not only the translation of language, but the translation of culture also goes in the other direction too. Not only would they not understand our culture, but we probably don't understand theirs either. We can translate language and we can learn about history and culture, but we have to understand that the Bible is this deeply contextualized book with many authors written over thousands upon thousands of years in several different languages, none of which are English. It's incredibly complex, and we cannot force our modern sensibilities, our modern understandings of science, onto the Bible if we want to be fair to it. We can't do that. As an example of just how complex the Bible and its translation is, I thought we could translate a little bit of it together this morning. So let's start at the beginning, literally. The Hebrew word, bereshit, do you see it up there? Bereshit? So just to clue you in, Hebrew, you read from right to left instead of left to right. So right after the big one is the word bereshit, the first word in the Bible, is commonly translated as in the beginning. And it's actually one of the most vague words that could have been used there because there's no other word in the following parts of the sentence that could be what Bereshit is in the beginning of, right? So in the beginning of what is the question that we find ourselves uh, asking in the first word of translation in the Bible? In the beginning of what? So just to try and help us out, and in some other places in the Old Testament, this word can be translated as at the start or even just simply as before or maybe more more colloquially as like way back when, kind of back there, yonder, I don't know. Um, so just as a reminder, we are, we are one word into Bible translation, and we already have multiple meanings and kind of confusing grammar. So let's move on then. Let's move on. The first word, I don't know about that, but maybe the rest of them are a little bit easier. So the third word in this sentence is Elohim. Do you see it up there? Uh, Elohim. Um, and that word is a very complex word also, uh-oh, but it's very simply translated most times as God. So we won't get into why that word is so complex, but um, mostly Elohim is God, right? So now you know two Hebrew words, woohoo. Um, so the word in the middle, the second word is bara, bara, and that word is often translated as created. Bereshit, bara, Elohim, in the beginning God created. We translated the first three words of the Bible. We did it. Except because of the strange grammatical structure in these first three words of the Bible, lots of Hebrew scholars make the argument that the more accurate translation is not in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, but instead when God began to create the heavens and the earth. Do you hear the difference? It's a pretty big one. When God began to create. The difference is that God did not at one time create the world and everything in it and say it is done. But that God began to create and is thereby still creating. You see, when we dive just a little bit deeper in the one phrase, the very first phrase of the Bible, we learn so much more 
We uncover a new meaning, a new understanding that changes everything. The creation of the world was apparently not just a one-and-done kind of thing. It is an ongoing process for God. Do you want to know what that sounds like to me? To me, that sounds like evolution. And not only that, it also reminds me, it teaches me, that a life of faith is an evolutionary life. In the same way that God is always creating, in the same way that evolution is this force force that is constantly at work on living beings, so too must our faith be an ever-changing part of who we are. We must be able to grow and change with the God of creation, with the God who is always creating. We must be able to let ourselves continue to be shaped and formed and then reformed to allow God to evolve us into the people we were always meant to be. If we never delved into Hebrew language and culture, if we never stopped to imagine what the Bible might be other than a textbook, which it is not, if we never tried to read it as if it was written not just to us, because it isn't, if we never did any of that, we would always miss the beautiful poetry and the artistry and the cultural significance of this book that has been preserved and translated and interpreted for thousands of years. We would miss all of that. And so we can and we should do those things. We should do that learning, that contextualizing, because then we can understand our faith even better than before. We can appreciate scripture with a kind of openness that not only makes room for what it says, not only gives us words to celebrate, um, but also to embrace that which science has to offer to us, which is a lot. Our text today says that when God began to create, the word was with God and the word was God. We're going to switch to Greek for a moment. I've been waiting just to be a nerd uh, all this time, so I'm so glad we finally got to a sermon when I can be my nerdiest self. So Greek, the Greek word for word in this New Testament passage in the Gospel of John is logos. Logos is uh, traditionally or most simply translated just as word, but there's also a whole bunch of meanings for this word as well. Logic is one of them. You can hear that. Logos, logic, reasoning, mind, or way of thinking. Scholars historically agree across the board that whatever else this word might mean, this word is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the logic of God, the reasoning of God, the mind of God. That's big important for us to know. And when we understand that, we can see that this passage says that Jesus was not only with God, but was God, was God's thinking during creation. Not only that, um, but it also says that everything came into being through the word, through Jesus, and that without the word, without Jesus, nothing came into being. Jesus was a part of all of creation. Jesus is a part of all of creation. What came into being through the word, through Jesus, was life, and the life was the light for all people, for everyone. When I hear this passage in a language I do understand, while recognizing that it was written in a language and in a time that I don't, I am able to suspend my very modern concern for fact and for 
literal interpretation and instead embrace the reality that these texts are works of art. They're works of faith. They're works of wonder and mystery. And at the same time, they are also works of imagination and possibility and hope. When I hear about everything that is coming into being through the word, who is Jesus Christ, what I realize is that this matches up with our belief that Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God with us here. And through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is God present in us and around us too. We do a little bit of digging, a little bit of contextualizing, and suddenly Genesis 1 and John 1 are not as much about the when and the how of creation. They are a lot more about the who and the what of creation. The who is always God. It is always the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator and redeemer and sustainer, moving and working in the world inviting us into their divine, creative dance together, always inviting us to participate in the holy life that they are creating for us. That's, that's the who. And the what. The what is our world, which is apparently constantly being created, constantly being renewed through and by and with God as a gift, as light, that we might come to see and know and understand and experience goodness. In his book entitled The Universal Christ, Richard Rohr writes this, Once we know that the entire physical world around us, all of creation is both the hiding place and the revelation place for God, this world becomes home, safe, enchanted, offering grace to any who look deeply. Elsewhere, he says, science is now giving us a very helpful language for what religion rightly intuited and imagined. I have to tell you that when I came to understand the world in this way, as home, as safe, as enchanted, as the revelation place for God, through the deep dives into scripture that I've done over the last several years of my life, I also began to see science as a way of looking more deeply, of encountering more of the grace of God, as a way of understanding the divine processes that make up life here on the earth. When we understand the Bible and what it offers to us through a lens of faith instead of just trying to wring out every little bit of scientific expertise or historical precision from it, when we read the Bible literately instead of literally, science becomes for us a light by which we can see the world and see ourselves and see God more clearly. In Luke Chapter 11, Jesus tells his disciples, people don't light a lamp and then put it in a closet or under a basket. Rather, they place the lamp on a lampstand so that those who enter the house can see the light. So when it comes to this relationship between faith and science, I think science is light. In fact, I believe when faced with science, when faced with scientific discovery, when faced with brilliant scientific theories, Jesus would say to us, 
Yeah. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've always known. You're actually discovering that which I offered to you as a gift, that which we are still creating with you and for you. Jesus would say that submitting to the wisdom and, frankly, to the miracle of science is a twofold gift, and that these two gifts can also help us determine how to move forward as people of faith who also embrace science, too. The first part of this gift is that we can and should benefit from the improvements and the advancements that science has to offer to us. We can and we should do that. Perhaps the most recent example for me is the COVID vaccine. I generally try to block out those long, lonely months before that, uh, before the vaccine was readily available. But when I do remember them, what I remember is the feeling of hopelessness, the feeling of the impossibility of it all, right? We kept being told the only way out of this is through herd immunity or vaccination, and neither seemed possible. Neither were coming to us. And then I remember the very first day that I read a press release suggesting that there was a vaccine being developed quickly and effectively. I, first of all, cried. <laughs> Second of all, I allowed myself to hope for the first time in more than a year. More than a year. I began to allow myself to picture what life might be like on the other side of this pandemic. I began to picture us gathering here in this place to worship together again after so long. Now, it was a pretty long journey from that moment until now, and the pandemic is still ongoing, but science is a miracle. Science was a light to us in a very dark time, maybe the darkest of our lives. It offered us protection, and in doing so, it offered us hope again. Hope is powerful. One of science's best gifts is our betterment. It is making the world more like the place that God is calling us to build, or more accurately, calling us to co-create. But the second gift that science offers to us is actually a posture. It's a way of thinking and believing and being in the world. This posture is one of curiosity, one of openness, one of imagination. Science teaches us to look around at the world and see the good, or the very good, as God would say, and to also, at the same time, begin dreaming about the world as it could be, a world where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain, a world that is restored to perfect wholeness through creativity and healing. In fact, I believe science gives us lenses to see the world in the same way that God does, with awe, with attention to creativity, and with a stubborn and tenacious kind of hope. This is hope that never leaves us where we are, but instead continually invites us to live into our potential, this holy potential that we were all created with and are being created with. Now, you might be thinking, all of that is well and good. That sounds nice. But what does it matter? Why does it matter that we should try to approach the world with openness and curiosity? Why does it matter uh, for us to, to try to continue to promote uh, a posture of, of dreaming, of wondering? Why do we need to be both people of science and faith? 
It's a good question. Well, right now, all signs point to a rather grim reality that we face. I had a conversation with my mom this past week about how there is no part of our life together as a society that is not tinged in some way with chaos or disorder. No part. I can think of of no thing that is not chaotic or disordered right now. Our politics are perhaps the prime example, aren't they? You don't need me to tell you about the dissension and the vitriol and the rhetoric, but there's also our economy teetering on the edge of recession. There's also this war that keeps coming back into the fore. There's looming climate disaster and daily gun violence and increasingly failing infrastructure. It's a dark time. And it feels like we're moving backwards. It feels like only destruction is happening on every side. It does not feel like anything is being created. What we need is light. What we need is discovery. What we need is openness and potential and hope. What we need is to find ways to be co-creators with God. To discover that which is divine among us. And if we can find ways to marry our faith with our scientific commitments, we can be a part of that work that God is always doing. So what I'm not asking is for you to set aside everything to become a scientist. Even science tells us that not all of us are meant to be scientists. I know that uh, that is certainly true for me. But what I am saying is that your job, our job as Christian people, is to embrace the gifts that science can and will offer to us and to our faith. So commit. Commit today to being an open-minded person. Commit to being a person with an evolutionary kind of faith. A faith that is always growing and adapting. Commit to being someone who is submitting to the creation and the re-creation of God. That we might together live the kind of life that is light to all people. Light that shines into this dark world. Light that can never, ever be overcome. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.